0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak your word to us. That we would truly hear your word. That it would bear fruit in our lives all to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. And kids, if you haven't, elementary kids, if you haven't already, I invite you to head to the back to meet your teachers for your special program. Today, we come to the heart of the matter. Salvation hinges on this. This is no secondary issue. The fundamental message of the gospel is at stake. Nothing could be more important than this. Last week, we began a series on the Nicene Creed, This creed that we recite together each week is a part of our worship. And we look together at five reasons that we recite the creed together. We said that it's because God tells us to. He doesn't specifically say in the Bible to recite the Nicene Creed, but he tells us to constantly say out loud and teach and think about his word. Because saying it over and over again actually shapes our beliefs. Doing it connects us with the church community, both here and also around the world. It's a shorthand for the teachings of the Bible. Remember, we can't recite the whole Bible together, but we can recite this together. And because it deepens our relationship with God. What we believe about God matters, and as we learn the truth about God, our relationship with Him is deepened. And we can respond in worship of our great and glorious God. And so then today, we get to the heart of the Creed. The main section that was actually the biggest reason that the Creed was written in the first place. How do we understand Jesus? Where does he fit into all of this? But not everyone likes reciting the Nicene Creed, not even all Christians Like reciting the Nicene Creed, or any other creed for that matter. In a previous church where I used to work, there was a woman who had been a member of that congregation for quite a few years, but she grew up in a Christian tradition that used the phrase, we have no creed but Jesus. Meaning, we don't use written creeds about Jesus ever. We have Jesus. Who needs man-made creeds We just believe in Jesus. And she told me, even though she'd been a member of this church and had been saying it faithfully as a part of our church for years and years, she told me that she still did not like saying it as a part of worship because she believed all we need is Jesus. That's it. This creed is unnecessary and probably bad. And so I asked her to tell me about Jesus. And she said something like, Well, like the Bible says, he's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He died on the cross for my sins, etc. And I said, great. But do you realize that every part of what you just said is rejected by various people who claim that the Bible does not teach those things? They're wrong, but they claim that. There are people who claim that they are reading the Bible correctly and reject every single one of the things that you just said. And I gently pointed out to her that her statement about what she believes about Jesus is quite literally a creed that she expected everyone who believes in Jesus to hold to. A creed is a firm statement of what we believe. And even though she didn't like the idea of a creed, she held quite firmly to one herself. In one way or another, each of us has a creed about Jesus, and what we want to do is make sure that we have a good one. And so with that, let's look together at this first part of the creed about Jesus, God the Son. So we're going to recite this part together. We'll do a few of these throughout this morning. So let's recite these words on the screen together, which is the first part of the creed about Jesus. Let's recite this together. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, you, you know the words. you kept going. We'll get there. We believe in one Lord. The Nicene Creed, as well as the New Testament, was written in Greek, and the word "Lord is the Greek is the New Testament way of referring to the divine name of God in the Old Testament. There is one God, has already been mentioned in the first sentence of the Creed, and now we have the connection of Jesus with that God, the Lord. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord can simply mean Sir, and at times in the Bible it does. But when the Bible says Jesus is Lord, it's saying something far more than Sir. To someone at that time, when the Creed was written, when the New Testament was written, someone steeped in the Bible, the Lord is the one true God revealed in the Old Testament. God is the Lord. And so the claim that Jesus is Lord is an unmistakable connection between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised Messiah of God. He is the Lord. And we affirm that he is the culmination of the people of Israel's story. The grand story that in faith we are grafted into. He, Jesus, is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament in the flesh. When Thomas, remember doubting Thomas, When Thomas gets to see Jesus risen from the dead, he declares at the end of John 20, My Lord and my God. Jesus is the Lord, the one true God in the flesh. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ means that we recognize that Jesus is the one Lord. Say this with me. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Turn with me to John chapter 1 in your Bibles. Read already this morning, John chapter 1, page 886, if you'd like to follow along in the Red Pew Bible. John chapter 1, page 886. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's a term from Greek philosophy that we're not talking about today, but it's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it down to verse 14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this section from John's Gospel, among other parts of the Bible, is the background for this portion of the Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father? This is explicitly Bible language. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He's the one Lord. He's the God of the Bible incarnate. And the Bible then calls Jesus the only begotten Son. Or if you were following along in our ESV, you may have noticed that it says only Son in verse 14. Instead of only begotten son, it's actually the same word used here in the creed, and it really is more accurately translated only begotten, not simply only. Or think of the famous John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible calls Jesus the only begotten son of God. So we affirm that in the creed. Jesus is the one Lord, that's a clear connection with Jesus being God, and then here he's described as the Son of God, which then distinguishes him from the Father. They are one, but there's also a distinction. Jesus is the Son, but he's a son in a very different sense than we typically use that word, very different way than human sons are. See, I have one biological son, so he is quite literally my only begotten son. But that is not what we affirm about Jesus in the Creed. See, with human children, we didn't exist, then we were conceived, and we did exist. But the Bible teaches that Jesus has always existed. Verse 1 again, in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word... All things were made through him. Everything that was ever made was made through him. He was not himself ever made because he's the maker of all made things and therefore cannot be himself made. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He was in the beginning because, as it says at the end of verse 1, the word Jesus was God. So in the creed, we use the language to try to get at this point. We use the language of eternally begotten. The relationship between Jesus and God the Father within the Trinity is one of Father and Son. But this relationship has always been. Unlike a human child that didn't exist and then did, Jesus, within the very being of God, has always been God the Son. And so we affirm that he is begotten because the Bible explicitly uses that word about Jesus. And we affirm that he is eternally begotten because he has always existed and has always been in the relationship of of son to God the Father within the Trinity. He was not produced like a human child. He is eternally begotten. Now, I know... That, that is anything but crystal clear. But we're trying to describe the essence and nature of God. There is nothing and no one like him in the world. He is unique, so no wonder it's hard to describe his nature and his essence. But this is what God has revealed about himself in the Bible, and so we affirm it even if we do not completely understand it. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. The Bible teaches that, and so we affirm it in the Creed together. Say this with me. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. You know the phrase, it doesn't make one iota of difference? And that, of course, means it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Well, here in the Nicene Creed, we have literally one iota that makes all the difference in the world. Jesus is of one being with the Father. Now, you do not need to know Greek in order to read the New Testament faithfully. But these are words worth knowing. And the difference is quite literally, one iota, the Greek letter I. So we'll put these two words on the screen. You see these two words? The top one is homoiousias and the bottom one is homo usias. and if you look carefully, you can see that there's literally just one I in the middle that makes the difference. Usias, the second half of each word, just means substance, or being. The top one, homoi, means similar, similar substance. The bottom one, homo, means same. Think English words like homogenous or homosexual. Same, in this case, same substance. At the time the creed was written, people who did not believe what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is God incarnate, people that did not believe that, were using the top one, homoiusius, to describe Jesus, meaning that Jesus is similar He's of, of a similar substance, substance whatever God's made out of, if you will. Jesus is like that. He's similar to that. And so in the debate about that and trying to faithfully read scripture, the writers of the Creed said, no, that's not right, and literally took out one letter from that word to make the bottom, bottom one up there, homoousias. Jesus is of the same being, the same substance. Of one being with God the Father. Jesus is not kind of like God, he is God. God made flesh, as it says in 1 John 14. Uh, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. And this leads to one of my absolute favorite internet photos that I found a few years ago. Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus. St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, was at the Council of Nicaea. And so the picture is Santa Claus, the mall Santa. Child goes to mall Santa and says, homoousias or homoousias? Mall Santa says, what? And the child turns away in disgust. You're not the real St. Nicholas. <laughs> Jesus is of one being, Homousias, one being with God the Father. All right, last one. Say this with me. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For us and for our salvation, he became incarnate. He was made man. That's John chapter 1 again, especially verses 9 to 14. See as sinners we need rescue from outside of ourselves. Only salvation from outside of us, outside of our sinful and fallen world can actually save us. For it's remarkable to me how often i see on social media Christians posting essentially buddhist sayings about finding salvation inside of us. That is not the way it works. I'm just telling you you're not good enough to find salvation inside of you. Only salvation can come from outside of us, from God himself. And so all that complicated theological language about Jesus in the first part of this section of the creed, all of that, that complicated stuff that hurts your brain if you try to think it all through, all of that leads up to this affirmation. For us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord, the Messiah promised in our Jewish heritage, eternally begotten of the Father, God the Son, the maker of all things that has ever been made, says, I want to go and save them. I'm going to go because I want to become one of them, to join them, to show myself to them in order to save them. And if we understand this correctly, this will not just be rote repetition. If we understand this right, this will make us weak in the knees. Because God says, David, Candace, Martin, Grayson. Victor, he says, I love you, and I want to save you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God joins our world for us and for our salvation. Dorothy Sayers the novelist, has a character in her novels named Lord Peter Whimsey. He has a troubled life, but the longer Sayer writes about him, she begins, in a sense, to to fall in love with her character. And so about halfway through the series of her novels, she introduces a new character, a woman named Harriet Vane. Harriet is a mystery novelist, and the first woman to graduate from Oxford. Sayers, the author, is a mystery novelist and was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Harriet, the character, loves, marries, and saves Peter Whimsey. You see what happens. In order to save her beloved character, Sayers, writes herself into the story she becomes a character in her own story in order to save the character that she's created and loves the author writes herself into the story in order to save her beloved character friends the eternally begotten son of the father jesus the Christ, the author of salvation, the author of life, leaves the glory of heaven so that he can write himself into our story, the story of Israel, the story of us, in order to save us, in order to set us free. He becomes one of us and joins our story from the inside. He takes on our limitations and our pains to show us his love for us in order to save us. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the truth of the creed is dense at this point. It's weighty and mysterious. But in it, we see the incredible love of God. For us, and for our salvation, he came. In love, God the Son wrote himself into our story to set us free and to give us life. Amen.